great. Sensational. Terrific. What is it? I told you. Cyberology. Are you with me? Not exactly with you, but somewhere nearby. Oh. This is Cybercrimology, a podcast about cybercrime, its research, and its researchers. My name is Michael, and if you were to draw a Venn diagram with cryptocurrency and money laundering, the overlap in the middle would be labeled Things Michael Knows Nothing About. I mean, when I was a kid, I thought that money laundering had something to do with dry cleaning. Luckily, there are people more informed than me who have been doing their best to fill in our understanding of cryptocurrency and money laundering. The Journal of Financial Crime recently published Virtual Money Laundering, Policy Implications of the Proliferation in the Illicit Use of Cryptocurrency by Dr. Christian Luprecht, Caitlin Jenkins, and Rihanna Hamilton. I will note that Dr. Luprecht is a co-investigator with the Human-Centric Cybersecurity Partnership, which is a Canada-wide group generating research on the social and human issues related to cybersecurity. We will be hearing more from the researchers from this partnership as we have an agreement with HC2P to share the work they have been doing. I do work with HC2P as my day job, but this is not a sponsorship. No money changes hands, and there are no strings attached to the deal. Just like to be open about this kind of thing. We will again be joined this episode by the ever-patient Vanessa Henry, who will graciously answer another of my silly questions about the basics of cyber lawyering. Now to the conversation. Let's just jump in here after I asked Rihanna and Caitlin about how it was they came to study cryptocurrency and money laundering. For about a year and a half, two years, my job was to code different money laundering cases. And we had this huge database we were going through and I was coding these all out and I came across one cryptocurrency case. And I was like, oh, that's really interesting. And kind of like put it in the back of my head and filed it away. And then a little while later, a couple months later, another cryptocurrency case came up and both of them were using cryptocurrency in fairly different ways. But they were using, I think it was Bitcoin, to transfer money in obviously illicit ways. So that sort of led to the beginning of of a conversation within our research group. Do cryptocurrency-based money laundering payments need to be looked at separately to money laundering? Can we fit this into the overall questions that we're asking about money laundering right now? Or do we need to look at this from a different angle? So my job was to situate basically a gap in our greater data set that we haven't looked at yet. And what I came up with was cryptocurrency, because we have a few cases on it, but nothing really exists in terms of the limited amount of money laundering research that does exist. Cryptocurrency is definitely not a subject on the radar. And Canadian uses of money laundering, because there was sort of initially a research interest because of what was happening in British Columbia with money laundering at the time and the Cullen Commission that exists out there. So there is a bit of research on that specifically, but not generally for what money laundering might look like in Canada, especially outside of British Columbia. Unfortunately, we weren't able to find Canadian cases of cryptocurrency use in money laundering because there's something about the the Canadian justice system that doesn't give specifics about things that we would need for any empirical research. So a lot of our cases came out of the US and specifically out of New York State because they're just very, very specific in the details that they give that we can extract variables from. I guess the method here is using case studies, but case studies when it comes to criminal enterprise are a little bit hard to document. It's not like you can uh, easily knock on their front door and, and ask for an interview to get all of the nitty gritty details. So how did you progress with such a difficult task? So we became obsessed with finding indictments, uh, with finding, let's say, like press releases that maybe the FBI would put out or Interpol would put out. 
investigative notes, court testimony. And then what we quickly found was that that was actually not going to be sufficient for the empirical research that we were putting forward for a couple of reasons. First of all, because these investigative organizations, they do really good work a lot of the time, but not all of that is publicly available. They will not share the specific banks used, for example, in a money laundering case. So we ended up having to delve into secondary source casework as well to uncover those gaps. So that meant blog posts, newspapers, investigative journalism. When you dove into these cases and put all of this stuff together, you came up with a, a is it four different methods. Would you describe them? How would you describe them? Are these methods? Are these just types of operations? Or I would say that they're anomalies more than actual categories because the general uh, structure of money laundering is understood as a three-step process. So placement into the actual financial system and then layering, which is when the actual money laundering happens and they transfer the funds through various ways, various banks, cryptocurrency, luxury goods, anything like that. And then Finally, integration where it gets returned to the criminal and they're able to actually use the money like they had gotten it legally. When we were looking at the cryptocurrency cases, however, what they did was fundamentally change that three-step process in ways that we didn't think possible. So we have this growing effort to regulate cryptocurrency. But they're using that outdated model. So I guess the methodology that we created or the results that we found were that cases we looked at fell into four ways that they changed the money laundering system. A really good example is this case, um, USAV Stoic et al. About the Alexandria Online Fraud Network, which was an enormous network throughout Eastern Europe. And they began a scheme trading their illicit funds from other schemes. So they would go on eBay and like trick people into giving them money, that sort of thing. And then they took those funds. They had a secondary business where they ran a cryptocurrency exchange and layered their own funds within that exchange and integrated their own funds within that exchange. So what was what we were seeing was this bigger scheme that we understood as the three-step process. And then they had a completely self-contained money laundering scheme within a scheme. So their layering stage was actually all three stages of money laundering within that one stage. And then we also have the, I think the most exciting dynamic being hacking and ransomware as a form of money laundering. Of course, that's already a financial crime, but scholars have always considered that to be outside the realm of money laundering. And now because of cryptocurrency and because of what it offers to criminals, people can hack cryptocurrency exchanges and steal their money and then layer that money in other third-party currency exchanges that also turn cryptocurrency into fiat currency. So we see all these anomalies that do not conform to what we think of money laundering. And if we keep using that old model of money laundering that seems, you know, tried and tested, then we're probably not going to get anywhere with cryptocurrency and crypto laundering. And all of them are operating in a very major capacity outside of any state-tied financial system. When these networks or these individuals or actors are engaging in illicit cryptocurrency payments, they're not picking the state-owned crypto. It's just completely circumventing the regulations on financial crime that are put in place for banks and for businesses because cryptocurrency inherently operates on the global level. It doesn't operate within the confines of a single, a single border. 
I don't know that much about money laundering, but I, I did watch Narcos, and it makes me think of the moment when particular cartels were making so much money that they were more or less operating their own banks in order to, to process that money. And that sort of led to rules about money laundering and a lot of regulation and, and more serious enforcement. Are we at that point with cryptocurrency? Have we had our Pablo Escobar moment? Okay, so let's take a step back. When we talk about money laundering regulation, the enforcement part doesn't necessarily follow. I mean, the Financial Action Task Force has helped to build supposedly a pretty robust international anti-money laundering regime. In practice, the enforcement is pretty sketchy. And look, when Russia invades Ukraine, all of a sudden politicians get together and they decide they're going to have massive sanctions on Russia. It's a function of political will. And there just hasn't been a lot of political will to enforce measures against financial crime. We don't necessarily need to talk about sort of the multivariate sort of problem behind this, but it's really a matter of political will. If we want to do this, it's entirely doable. Um, it's just a matter of whether we actually want to do this from a political perspective. And so I'd say that on crypto, it's partially uh, an issue, I think, of, of awareness, similar as with much financial crime. It's sort of put away as like, well, you know, it's just a bunch of guys moving money around rather than realizing that that money itself is either associated with precursor crime from which that benefit was derived or that the sources of funds are intentionally derived from activity that we would simply not condone in a democratic society. Think about the outflow of about 50 billion US dollars uh, in funds um, from state kleptocrats out of China every year. Uh, so, but as you point out, this is big business. And in the money laundering scholarship, there's something called money laundering as a business. So as to say, there are actual entities that launder money on a very large scale. And these entities are active in Canada. How do we know this? The final report of the Cullen Commission on Money Laundering in British Columbia that documents this quite extensively. And so when you launder such large amounts of money, you need multiple vehicles to launder that money and to park that money, but you also need multiple vehicles in order to be able to layer that money and effect effectively to wash that money. And so cryptocurrencies are one instrument in that layering process where kind of you move it among different types of instruments. And the nice thing from a money laundering perspective about cryptocurrencies is that it can serve any of three purposes, which many other instruments can't. It can simply be a value exchange mechanism. It can be an asset that you hold as such, or it can be an investment. The only challenge that you run into with cryptocurrency is there's relatively little that you can buy with cryptocurrency. So cryptocurrency in and of itself is not a good laundering instrument because you always need to have the ability to reintegrate the crypto value component back into some other value mechanism, that is to say fiat currency, real estate, whatever it might be. So that's why crypto is of one instrument in this much larger money laundering equation. And even if you're a Russian organized crime and you're using ransomware to extract billions of dollars from people, just sitting on the crypto in and of itself doesn't 
do a whole lot for you per se. But at some point, you need to buy something with that cryptocurrency, whether it's weapons or, or, or whatever else. So you're going to need to somehow extract that value from the instrument. Cryptocurrency is a thing that is, I mean, it's complicated, it's diverse, it's nuanced, but it's also full of ideologies and idealists. How do you walk the line between the temptation to paint cryptocurrency as an evil tool for illegal ends and steer away from the other painting of it as a tool for freedom from oppression by what's the word capitalist governments and 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 multinationals how do you how do you walk that line so if you look at this from the from approach of political sociology I'm quite with Barian in my in my approach in the sense that I don't come at it with particular normative biases one way or another. And to the best of my ability, I try to pull sort of broad assumptions and biases out of my research. I mean, no research can be completely free of assumptions and biases. And simply to try to put some data behind the conversation. So to have a more data-driven, more informed conversation. At the same time, I'm not a positivist. In some of these cases, it's the data that we can collect rather than the data that we would really like to have. So it's only ever going to give us sort of a partial picture of what's going on. But I find a lot of the conversation, especially about the illicit uses of cryptocurrency, is a lot of hyperbole, is a lot of assumptions, and a sort of like 30,000-foot Air Force sort of approach. When you're doing strategic bombing from 30,000 foot, all the targets look the same. So why don't we actually come into sort of a lower flight and see if we can have sort of and encourage a more nuanced conversation about what the phenomenon looks like descriptively, the analysis that follows from it, and, and some of the implications. I think generally, you know, I guess I have sort of two objectives there. One is that I have sort of this lifelong drive to try to avoid bad public policy. And in many cases, we make bad public policy because politicians pretend that we have evidence-based public policy. We don't have evidence-based public policy and evidence-based decision-making. Rather, we have uh, decision-based evidence-seeking. And so this is trying to actually take some of the data, some of the some of the evidence, and try to put some of that behind key decision-making. The other is sort of an effort to generate better decision-making. I mean, some of the conversations that we're having today, my colleague Art Cofield and I testified before Comidiad in 2015. It just takes a very long time to percolate because people just don't understand this space. It's a little bit like, you know, like most people don't understand how the engine in their car works. They just want to get in, they want to turn it, and they want to drive away. And so they've heard about cryptocurrency. A bunch of people might even own some cryptocurrency, but even the idea of blockchains and how exactly it works or so is sort of alien to them. And it's really hard for us to make good decisions and good public policy when even our own parliamentarians don't understand the very subject that they subsequently have to make informed decisions about. It's sort of an effort to try to hopefully raise a bit of the public and and informed level of conversation, uh, precisely because financial crime in general, and I think cryptocurrency in particular, is having exceptionally deleterious consequences for societies. I mean, in 2021, we're looking at what about just Bitcoin alone, 37 million transactions totaling about $76 billion in terms of the illicit transactions uh, using Bitcoin. Like, these are fantastic numbers. These are huge numbers. Uh, and so I think we need to have an honest conversation that, yes, there are very good and legitimate 
reasons to resort to cryptocurrency. There are motivations that come out of the 2008 financial crisis of trying to avoid state-based fiat, sort of state-backed currency. And at the same time, we need to realize that this has been a boon for criminals of all sorts, not just organized criminals, but uh, kleptocrats that are robbing their countries blind and people who are engaged in some of the most heinous crimes that we can imagine around the world, where cryptocurrency has now enabled them to move huge amounts of money. Think also of the ability of North Korea, the way North Korea has leveraged crypto, and the way Russia and its sort of state-tolerated state-affiliated crime groups leveraged crypto through ransomware in a very large systematic fashion. So we got to have a realistic conversation about the illicit dimensions of crypto and the deleterious consequences for our societies in general and democratic societies in particular. Finding a venue for a paper that is cyber and physical is notoriously difficult. So what was the process for selecting where you would submit this this paper? So it's a fascinating question because indeed, as you point out, these pieces can be difficult to publish because they're usually smaller samples. So they don't fit journalists that like to do large quantitative work. And the work that you can do with the data, we have about 26 data points or so that we code for, but it's sort of not enough for you to run the, uh, a large scale regression. And at the same time, it's usually not sort of theoretical enough that sort of it fits into one of the broader sort of criminology journals. And so I think it points to some of the biases within academia that sort of assumes you can either gather you already have a large data set or you're doing largely theoretical conceptual work or work like single end case studies or so. And so I think to some extent it, it points to the fact that academic journals actually in many cases not well postured for people to write on novel emergent topics on which we're starting to gather some data, but it's hard to gather the data. The journal that I picked here is sort of the leading journal on financial crime in the world. So there's two sort of complementary journals. One is the Journal on Money Laundering Control, and the other is the Journal of Financial Crime. They're both run by Barry Ryder, who in many ways is considered, I think, the, the dean of um, money laundering financial crime research at uh, Jesus College, Cambridge. And so that was a relatively easy sell to that particular journal, but I think it would have had trouble in a regular crim journal and would certainly um, not have worked for a more quantitative journal. But the benefit is that, look, that, that there's relatively few people who write on these types of topics. As we show in that article, the literature on illicit uses of cryptocurrencies is a concern with issues of regulation and policy, or it's concerned uh, with law enforcement practices. But there really isn't uh, a data-driven literature on this, nor particularly crim or crim theory-based literature. And so this is sort of an effort of you got to lower the sunk cost for people to get into it. So pull it together, publish something in the hopes that you can make it more accessible, you can encourage other people to start writing about it. And I think there's a growing interest in the illicit uses of cryptocurrency, also sort of from the legal side or so, so that we can as in many of these cases, start to build out a little bit of a community 
Yeah, so that was the intent behind uh, behind publishing in the Journal of Financial Crime. And I guess it's also the journal that probably for a quick audience on that particular topic, the readership for those two journals is both academics, but in particular practitioners who work in that field. So I think it's also the place where it's likely to get the most traction in sort of the more accessible way that uh, we deliberately wrote this article. What should we understand from what you're able to, to find out? What we understand is how much we don't understand about cryptocurrency in general and evaluating just the base lack of knowledge within so many financial sectors and investigative sectors and regulatory sectors about all the components of what goes into crypto laundering. And we're discovering more and more that cryptocurrency isn't just about the technology that people don't understand. That exists within a much greater network and ecosystem of human factors, obviously the software itself, the technology, and then also the hardware and where it exists in the world. All of those things are connected and dependent on one another. So what we're finding is that we need to adjust our expectations and our knowledge on the assumptions that we make about cryptocurrency. Because if you treat it as it is a fiat currency, you can do that sort of thing maybe with Bitcoin because of its popularity. But when it comes to these diverse, uh, what we call like altcoins, so anything but Bitcoin, they can be legitimate and widely used, but they can also be created for the specific purpose of hiding illicit money. As regulators or as investigators, if we want to prevent the abuse of cryptocurrencies, it needs to be understood on its own terms, not trying to fit it in or added on to already existing legislation and like what we understand about the traditional financial system. And more specifically, what we found was that in Canada, our regulation and our investigation is not enough to cover what cryptocurrency is doing. In 2019, they did add virtual currency to the Proceeds of Crime, Money Laundering and Terrorist Financing Act, which is the major piece of legislation that looks over all the financial crime in Canada. It's way too early to see if those changes will actually make a difference and in what way they'll make a difference. So we couldn't really make a judgment about that. But looking at the investigative side of things on how cryptocurrency is actually prosecuted in Canada, the RCMP and other investigative bureaus just don't have the knowledge and don't have the tools to look at anything but Bitcoin. They are getting better at using private sector tools to track Bitcoin because that is a possibility. The ledger technology of Bitcoin is pseudo-anonymous and it's one of the less anonymous forms of cryptocurrency. You can garner a lot of information from the blockchain in Bitcoin. You can understand the transaction amount, what time it was done, the previous transaction before that one. Each transaction in each account has a individual hash that's attached to it. So you can track all those things for Bitcoin. You don't know the sender or the receiver though. But private sector tools help investigative agencies connect that private anonymous information or pseudo-anonymous, I should say, to somewhere on the internet where that is attached to an actual identity. And that's where they can do the prosecution and the investigative part of stopping crypto laundering. But that only exists for Bitcoin. And it's limited in the amount uh, of success, the success rate of how it's being used for other cryptocurrencies, especially those that are a lot more private. There's this one cryptocurrency Monero that we're seeing pop up more and more. And it has stealth addresses and other privacy features that just prevents anybody from 
seen any detail about uh, those transactions. Within this data set, we see that Bitcoin comes up the most in terms of the coins used for illicit cryptocurrency money laundering. However, there's two potential reasons for that. The first is that Bitcoin is genuinely the one being used the most by these criminal networks. The second option is that criminal networks are having an easier time getting away with crypto laundering using other coins. I, I don't have an answer to which one is the more likely hypothesis there, but it's exactly like Caitlin said, our understanding of how cryptocurrency is used for money laundering is incredibly limited at this point. And the biggest takeaway is that we really need more concentrated efforts in the Canadian context, but I would say most of all in the global context to address this huge discrepancy. Um, the Financial Action Task Force is sort of the leading body on addressing financial crime and sort of putting forward recommendations for governing bodies, regulatory bodies, investigative agencies on how they should be approaching financial crime. And they really do lay the groundwork and do a lot of the judgment on how the international community is addressing financial crime. So one of the most important things that we could see is them starting to take cryptocurrency a lot more seriously and integrating a solid series of transboundary global recommendations that acknowledge cryptocurrency as the global phenomena that it is. Trying to tie any sort of solution to a single state is just going to undermine anything you're going to do. You're going to be causing more problems if Canada goes, oh, I'll deal with this on my own. And every single payment that is going through is actually taking place in the United States or in the US Virgin Islands. Canada can't regulate that. And their investigative agencies, frankly, don't have the capacity to address those crimes in any way that's efficient at this time. Thanks very much for your time. Thanks for sitting down. And I look forward to talking to you again soon. Michael, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. Thank you. It was nice chatting with you. If you're involved in cyber, then you're often expected to answer questions on everything from the difference between an allow list and a firewall to the impact of mandatory breach reporting on cyber insurance actuarial calculations. The best way to get ahead of those wild questions is to ask an expert, and we happen to have cornered a cyber lawyer. Vanessa Henri is a co-founder at Henri & Wolf an adjunct professor, an advisor on numerous boards, and a sought-after speaker. And after seeing her on a panel just last week, I can attest as to why. But more importantly than all of that, she is patient, and she's willing to answer my basic questions, so we'll take advantage of that, and we'll ask her this. When I watch TV, actors pretending to be lawyers stride around in these seemingly armoured suits doing whatever they want, saying whatever they want, and causing all sorts of drama. So in, in, in reality, can you say whatever you want as a lawyer? Is there, are there things you can't do? Unfortunately, there's a lot of things you cannot say as a lawyer. So, And I think that's something that is maybe isn't clear when you go to law school. They tell you you can do a lot of advocacy, you can have a, finally have a voice, but they don't say that's not your voice, though. Uh, you can have the voice of your client, you can see the advocacy of your client, but having your own voice into this is a lot more difficult. And it makes sense if you think about it. Your first job as a lawyer is to be loyal to your client and put their interests before you. So if you go to the radio and say, all of these companies that have poor cybersecurity are so stupid, 
then a lot of your clients will call you and say, are you calling me stupid? Is that what you're saying? Uh, I was calling you for help. Why are you being so patronizing? And why are you pushing the media to send more rocks towards us, right? I think the idea is that this is not about you. It's about what's good for your client and what's good for, for society as a whole, because ultimately your clients are required to comply with the law and society is supposed to put laws in place that are good for society, like let's say your privacy laws. So it's not about what you think as a person in terms of advocacy, it's about thought leadership and about showing the way out of these things and about showing solutions and about being there for advice but definitely not about taking the stance and see what you think about privacy. So that's why very often I get requests by the media and I say, I, I can't comment on a company. Uh, and I'm not there either to judge a company that's done something wrong. Uh, my job is to help them so that they don't do something wrong after or that they can fix some, the mess they did. Um, so it, it's, not a, it's not something that allows for so much free speech going around and criticizing and talking about data breach of other company. Now, you may see some people that will talk about privacy in the big corporation, what they do wrong, and some lawyers, but mostly these are the consumer protection rights lawyers. So they'll be working for consumers. And so that will fit their advocacy that they're allowed to do. But down the line, uh, it's very hard to have a, an honest public advocacy when you can say whatever you think without putting yourself in a situation where you're either misleading about what you really think and confounding with your business interests, or in a situation where you're not being loyal to one of your clients. So down the line, your job as a lawyer is not to have the spotlight. Your job as a lawyer is actually to protect people around you. So if you're there to, to take the spotlight, and if you, if you just like to speak about your opinion, and you want to have a free speech about everything, then just, you know, every lawyer that want that, they all do the same thing. They go into politics. You'll see the number of lawyers as politicians. Until you are a politician, in which case you have to give up your practice, then you can't do that. Your job as a lawyer is to represent others and not to go on your own path as a free bird, unfortunately. A big thank you to Vanessa and thanks again to Dr. Christian Lerprecht, Caitlin Jenkins and Rihanna Hamilton. And you can, of course, find a link to the paper in the show notes where you'll be able to read more details about money laundering and cryptocurrency. In the meantime, though, this has been Cybercrimology, a podcast about cybercrime, its research, and its researchers. It's produced by me, but it's only really made possible by the kind guests who share their time and their research. You can find out more about the show at cybercrimology.com, and you can talk to me at cybercrimology on Twitter.